Well, welcome back to Wales, John. Uh, and congratulations, big congratulations for having your work now upon the uh, the walls of the National Museum here in Cardiff. It must have been great for you to uh, come along that evening for the opening, meet David and uh, and, and bump into uh, Sir Don McCallan again, another good friend of yours. Uh, do you keep in touch? Yes, I do keep in touch. I sort of tend to bump him into him about once a year or so, but um, he's rather grand now, being... <laughs> being a, a sir and all that, yeah. but <laughs> he, he, he's an old friend. And going back to the image that you swapped with, with David Hearn, which is that, I guess, one of the iconic images of yours from the north um, with the, the young kids and the mother in the washing line. Um, do you recall the, the images that, uh, that David swapped with you? Ah, yes. The, I chose two images of his. Oh. One was a, both of them from his Wales series. And right. One was a... Um, of a couple of sheep res- uh, 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 sheltering in a, in a bus shelter. You probably know the, the picture, yep. which has always been one of my favourites. And the other was of a, a, a pony on the Welsh hills, which it, it's near where I live, up in the, the Black Mountains and things. It's always something I'm nostalgic about. But I've always f- felt that those were David's best pictures anyway. From you know, I, I think he really found himself as a photographer in the early 70s when he went to live in Wales. I think he went to teach people to, for, to take photographs at Newport and he taught himself a lot more. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, he's always been someone who I've regarded as a, as, a very, as a good friend and a very nice person. But I think his photography really took off when he did, his, did that series on Wales because it's so sensitive and, and, and beautiful and he spent a lot of time about it. And I've never been keen on what I call swinging 60s pictures and all that Beatles stuff, you know, I had to do my bit of it, but it wasn't really what I found interesting. Mm. And do you remember the first time you met David, where you met? I met him, I think it was about 1960. I was working for the Daily Express as a news photographer. And I remember I met Philip Jones Griffiths by chance when I was photographing the the Christmas lights in Oxford Street and he had a bunch of likers around his neck and I, he just didn't he wasn't like a press photographer and I started chatting and then he he at that time I think was sharing a flat with David Hearn and so I went round to see him and we met met there and as I say we've been friends ever since. I believe you and Philip crossed paths again in Ethiopia was it uh, sometime in the, in the 1960s D- tell me that story. Well um I arrived in Ethiopia to do a story for the Sunday Times magazine on uh, on the head of the Queen's visit because the Queen was going on a state visit there. And although she'd done a lot in Africa, they'd, all her trips had been to former British colonies and places like that. And Ethiopia was the was a, was the exception because it you know we'd never colonised it and and it was a big story. And so all three of the colour magazines did stories on Ethiopia. And I arrived in Addis Ababa, and I had about 10 days there for my, for my deadline for the press, because they had to go to press to, to get in time for the Queen's actual visit. And I arrived there, and I only had 10 days to go. And I, Philip was there already, and he'd been there for six weeks. And he'd been all over the country with a sort of government-sponsored trip. And we went out to dinner that night, and he said, oh, you're wasting your time, John, you might as well go home. These people, they see the camera and they run a, run a mile, you know, you're wasting your time. Um, so I had a sleepless night, I thought, what the hell am I going to do? So I, I came to the conclusion that if, 
if he'd been to the tourist spots with with a package tour, the only way I was going to get good pictures was to go somewhere where people didn't even know what a camera was. So I made my plans and got a car and went to the middle of nowhere and hired a mule and went off on the back of this mule for a few days up into the hills. Entirely on your own? Uh, entirely on my own, yes. Wow. And um, I think I, I got more good pictures in that, those three days than he got in six weeks. But, you know, that doesn't, that's not putting Philip down because he was a great photographer, but he was really best on his own projects rather than assignments with a sort of deadline and a, and a story to follow. I've always really liked being a free agent and driving my own self-drive car and wandering around where I wanted to. And, you know, I'm sure I've missed things that I should have got by not, you know, doing it the official way. But I've always been happier just following my nose. And um, that it takes one into a whole lot of things because I was brought up, as you know, in, in, an, in an era when there weren't picture magazines in England. I, I started work in 1960. The last picture magazine in, had closed, Picture Post had closed in 1957, I think. So in the early 60s, there were only really newspapers. And a couple of other things were just beginning. Town Magazine was just beginning to, to do really exciting stories. And Queen Magazine did a few. But it was a very different world. Um, the only really good magazine in the world that did photojournalism was probably Life magazine. Um, and I I was very impressed by a lot of Life magazine, but even that had an element of tending to get a bit corporate. Mm. It had They had their great stars like Eugene Smith, who did the story on Pittsburgh, but it got him fired from Life magazine. So what was always interesting was to do things that were a little bit off beat and not just tick off the boxes of this and that and everything else but to find something that actually kicked you in the gut and my contemporaries Philip and Don McCullin they both had an extraordinary ability in their own context to get pictures that kicked you in the gut and I think none of us wanted to come back with the you know the rule book photographs we wanted to come back with something a little bit different Normally, I never worked with a minder unless I had to. Um, there were a few exceptions, like where a place you really couldn't speak the language or get around, but um, I would do as much as I could on my own, usually. Just describe that whole process and the challenges of submitting work then to, to the magazines and the newspapers, whether it was negatives or, or the other challenges with transparencies. Well, in the days of black and white, um, I would shoot the material, either develop it myself or get it processed and usually make a selection of prints and go to the magazine with some prints and the contact sheets. And then they would make a selection and we get them printed up. And therefore there wasn't a, a problem in a security point of view because you keep the negatives. When colour came along, it was a very different situation because all the colour we, we did in those days was on transparency film. Negative film just wasn't sharp enough. I think, I don't know the full technical reason, but it just wasn't any good. So the magazine wanted to work from the actual original transparency. And that presented quite a problem when you were selling stories in all over the world, because, I mean, a lot of photographers did a first set for their, for their commissioning magazine. They did a second set and a third set, and they give them to an agency and you'd end up losing a lot of those 
other ones. And by the sort of late 60s, Philip and I decided we really wanted to try and do something about that. So we invented a process of making duplicate transparencies. But the only way we could get the quality we wanted was by enlarging them to five by four inches. Because if you if you duplicate a 35mm transparency onto the same size, you tend to get a grain structure imposed on a grain structure and you'd get a sort of interference pattern and that would reduce the sharpness a great deal. So there were a lot of problems in in making this process and I remember I found an aircraft landing lamp out of a glider from World War II and put up a big halogen bulb in it and then we had to go through several layers of heat absorbent glass with a cooling fan and we did build an enlarger that, that was capable of actually producing good duplicates. But it wasn't that cheap and it didn't really ever catch on in a big way because I think the magazines liked the, the cheap and simple way. But in theory, it meant that you could keep your originals at home and and send out five by four duplicates. Did that get interest from photographers at the Well, at it the did time? to a certain amount, but it uh, I think the cost of it and the fact mm. that magazines really felt they wanted to work from the originals and they didn't like the idea of working from a, a dupe. So it didn't catch on as much as we would have liked it to have done. What I, I find fascinating about that story, though, is it was both of you harking back to your past. You were engineering and him in chemistry. That's right. I mean, I was more responsible for the mechanical aspects of the enlarger and, and Philip you know, worked on the chemistry of the processing. And one of the other things is that it's very hard to make a duplicate that's good enough because the the processing in a colour lab, it was, it was a, a dynamic process. And what they did was they would plot the results and adjust the chemicals according to what they were getting. So if the process went a little bit out of, of kilter, um, if you did a test uh, strip for, um, for making a dupe, by the time you, you come to, came to do the real one and, and process it, the process might have changed and, and it therefore wasn't quite spot on. And the other thing is that when you shoot a picture, you, you don't go back to the original location with the same lighting and compare it with the original. But when you make a dupe, you actually compare the dupe and the original side by side, and that makes it much tougher. And was Philip practising what he preached? Was he using this bef before he put a set into Magnum? Was he keeping some of his own images? He was, he was doing it where he could, yes. Right. Uh, but it, we didn't do that for very long, and, and I think Magnum always wanted to have the originals too. So, But it was interesting, he's, uh, Philip Jones Griffiths, regarded as one of the, the great war photographers, I mean, particularly with the Vietnam War. But your career saw you in the thick of some of these war zones as well, pretty early on, Bolivia, Beirut. I did end up in a number of wars, um, in the Congo, in Beirut, in Cyprus, in, in Brunei. Um, I actually took Don McCullen to his very first war in, in Cyprus. I think it was 64. I was there for the Sunday Times and he was there for the Observer. And he arrived in the Ledra Palace Hotel in Nicosia and he didn't have a room to stay in. So I gave him the spare bed in my room. And the next day we heard there was a battle going on and I gave him a lift in my hire car. And we got there. And I realised that at one point the... The, the Greeks started lobbing bazookas into the village we were in. And um, Don loved it. He was running around 
in paradise. And I realised then that I really didn't want to spend my life being a war photographer, but he clearly loved it. And he was very good at it. Because there's an image of his, uh, which is quite harrowing. The uh, I think it was one of the, the wives whose, whose husband, I think, had just, That's been, right. yeah. had just been killed. But there is another image. The, <laughs> you yes, grabbed this we, camera. There was one point we were standing side by side and we took the same picture, um, which is of a, of a woman who'd lost her husband and her son, I think. I'm actually referring to the one of him. Oh yes, well actually, doing a runner. There was a, a point where we were more or less together, and there's an old lady who was struggling. And Don handed me his cameras and and picked the lady up and carried her to safety. And because you do these things in a split second, because I had his cameras in my hand, I I knew this needed a picture, so I took a picture of it on his camera, because that was the one that happened to be in my hands, uh, and I've used that in my book. Because Don is often regarded as being quite hardened and um you know has his ghosts from from all those years in the wars but he was very very young that as you say it was his first war was was that him being a bit yellow really in terms of um earning his stripes to put the camera down and get involved no i, I don't think don has lost his humanity i think no. that um he would do that if he found a situation where he felt he could help somebody because what prompted a, that moment then with him i I think that there was an old lady trying to get to safety. These bazookas were landing, and she was um, she was a bit lost and didn't know what to do. And he just felt she needed help. Because mm. it must take a lot to. You can see his head's down. I mean, it you, you get a sense of the moment. There, there were some American um, journalists and photographers who were lying in a ditch with their faces down at that point. I mean, I, I've, I was trying to be logical, and I felt this is not a nice situation. We have a chance of getting killed, but at least I want to try and get some pictures out of it mm. um, rather than going home with no pictures and you know, still having the same chance because you, know, you didn't really save yourself by lying in a ditch. So. Mm. I mean, you, you both favoured shooting people. Uh, I think McCullen, well, in fact, Philip mm-hmm. Jones Griffiths as, as well. But looking back, say, on those two, Philip and, and Don, how, how would you describe if there's a distinctiveness, in, just in your mind, in the styles of the approach to the way you work? Um, I think that, I mean, Don has a, an ability to, to make th- images that hit you in the gut. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes him stand out in, in my book from the others. Philip is a thinking photographer. He is best on his own projects when he's not being told what to do. And in certain, certainly a situation like Vietnam, he didn't follow the, pa- the pack and take pictures making the American soldiers look like conquering heroes, but he photographed what he felt about it. So he was a very political photographer. And that was, to me, his, his great virtue. Were you ever tempted by Magnum? I mean, you were in the thick of it then. I was tempted by Magnum, but the situation was that uh, when that arose, which was in the sort of mid-60s, uh, and I did talk through with Philip because he was right. just uh, go, going into it, mm. but the problem with my, for myself was that I was working almost full-time at that point to the, for the Sunday Times magazine, and I would have had to give half of my income to Magnum which didn't seem like a very attractive proposition at the time. Were you tempted by the camaraderie side of it in terms of the, the photography group? Yes, but having said that, most of Magnum was outside Britain. I and mean, the people, yeah. there weren't that many people in England in Magnum um, at that point at all. I think 
uh, I mean, I think it was George Roger who was really more or less retired, and but Magnum was really in Paris and New York, and uh, so although I did sometimes meet Magnum people, I mean, for example, one of my my early influences in photography was when Bert Glynn, who became president of the Magnum, came to Cambridge to do a story on Cambridge. And I spent quite a lot of time with him, wandering around looking for subjects. And that really gave me, a, a for, my, for the first time, an understanding of, that it was possible to travel the world and have the kind of life I wanted to do by being a photographer. So he opened all kinds of ideas in my mind about what was possible to be done. Mm. And early on, who, who were the photographers that were influencing you? I mean, who... Because you well, started quite young, didn't you, before you went to Cambridge and tried the engineering sort of side. But I, I, um, what were you looking up to? I, when I was a, a sort of schoolboy, I went through various crazies, like, you know, Meccano and toy trains, and then someone gave me a box brownie. And to start with, I was fascinated by the mechanical aspects of it, you know, developing and printing and building my own enlarger, which I made out of tin cans and Meccano and things. And then suddenly I sort of discovered the image. And at that time, Britain was fairly dead from the point of view of photography. If you wanted to show your pictures, you went to the Royal Photographic Society or the London Salon, and they had pretty awful old things with men with beards lit with spotlights, and you know, it was pretty corny stuff. And then I saw, there were two things I remember particularly hit me hard. The, the, the first one was one of Cartier-Bresson's books, I think he was on China or something like that. And the other was the Family of Man exhibition, which mm. really opened, to my, my, opened my eyes to what photography could do and how it could be informal. And I really loved this, Cartier-Bresson's idea of, of a decisive moment, photogra photographs being not set up and posed, but actually being a, a slice of life. Because that was what the camera could do that a painter couldn't do. Mm. In amongst those uh, photographers who were practicing that, I mean, who were the, the big inspirations in terms of, as, as you started to take more of an interest in photography or photojournalism, who, who were the practitioners then that, that well, you saw the, producing great work? Yes, there, there were lots of people in the Family of Man exhibition who, whose pictures had, had a magic quality. I particularly remember one of Elliot Erwitz there that I loved and Eugene Smith, and then he did his book on Pittsburgh, which I found very inspiring. Uh, so, and then obviously Cartier-Bresson, who did a lot of great work. Mm. So those were the people who I was fascinated by. And I used to, there was a period when I used to try and get Life magazine whenever I could and look at the stories. And although there were a lot of very good stories in that, very well shot. It's interesting just on some of those bigger names that they did in fact make trips and, and shoot in, in the UK around yeah. uh, early on, yes. I think. But you would have been around then. You would have been shooting. But we had Bruce Davidson over. In yes, the I, I, Eugene Smith. I, I didn't meet Gene Smith then. I met him a, I met him in the mid-60s in New York, and he was pretty old and retired by then. So I think it was the 50s he came over, wasn't That's it? That's right. I, I was, you see, I was still in school in the 50s. I didn't. I wasn't photographing professionally really till the 60s. No, no. But you had so, an appreciation of who was doing what. Yeah, well, a little bit. Um, it didn't really catch me till pretty much, pretty close to the 1960s, oh, okay. 59, 60. Right. I did spend some time with Bruce Davidson when he was in London in the early 60s. 
Um, uh, Eugene Smith wasn't coming over in those days. Um, Bill Brandt still was an influence. But as time went on, I found him, he wasn't really a street photographer. He, he, didn't, he wasn't a decisive moment photographer. And my, my work and my passion kind of took me, although he is a great photographer, uh, I wanted to do things a little bit differently. It was interesting. Bill Brandt straddles, his stuff is fantastic, but he straddles that art side as well, doesn't he? Close-ups, figures, a lot of feet, bodies, figures, yes. but takes it to the abstract in some ways as well, which I think is fascinating. But in that style of black and white, yes. Eugene Smith, abs- absolutely. And uh, there's a couple of your images that just, that, they've been my favourites. I mean, although I love the North work. The early morning misty scene of going over the bridge yeah. uh, up in the north. Um, well, and funnily enough, the other black and white one is the sea call. Uh, yeah. The big diagonal yeah. white shot going down to the sea. Well, I think when I first went to the north, the first time was for Town Magazine to Nelson. I'd, I'd done enough of my apprenticeship, as you might say, on the Daily Express. And I'd done some stories while I was at Cambridge. And I'd got to that point where... I knew that I was trying to do more than just tick the boxes, but I had to get some pictures that kind of hit you in the gut. And that's what I was trying to do. And you you can't, you know, go to certain places and cover certain things. You just really have to leave yourself open to what appears in front of you and, and be quick to grab it. And certainly being a news photographer was extremely good training from that point of view. I knew you didn't have a second chance. You know, you have to anticipate that moment and grab it. Mm. But it was an extraordinary era in that I could make that relatively short journey from London to the north of England. And I could find things that were as exotic to me as going to darkest Africa almost. It was, it was so different and so visually interesting, I found. I almost felt it was a license to steal. But going back to those American photographers coming to the, to the UK, what did you think of the work then that they'd produced coming over? Well, I didn't see... Uh, Bruce Davidson's work on England was actually all after I'd done a few stories on the North, I think. So I didn't really see it till then. And his stuff is very poetic, certainly. Um, the other American photographers I'd actually seen in England was obviously Bert Glynn when he did Cambridge. And his work was is very good it wasn't quite so much hit you in the gut stuff Uh, Larry Burroughs came to do stories in Cambridge they were very competent but they were a little bit sort of practical stories and and a little bit you know he's a great photographer but at that point I felt he was ticking the boxes a little bit Mm. Um, but I was still amazed when you look at contact sheets of people that how they are able to move into a situation and make strong compositions and 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 take a whole lot of pictures that are all good um, I mean some of them are great and some of them are good but they were very high caliber photographers some of those and uh, I, I felt at that time that Don and Philip and I were a bit sort of amateurish we we weren't quite ticking the boxes as much as we should but what gradually emerged I think all three of us were able to take pictures that that had a bit of that power in them and uh, Sometimes it has to be a happy accident. You can't, you can't be too meticulous and too accurate and too careful, because then you miss the, the offbeat thing mm. that's emotional. Mm. Did you take your time 
would you hover and linger yes. rather than uh, shoot it to death? Because you were on deadlines, obviously. Uh, n- well, I wasn't on deadlines with those magazines. Right. Um, it did vary a lot how long I would spend. I mean, the, the first one I did for town was Nelson, and I was only there for a few days because I was with a writer and, and he only had a few days. But it was an extraordinary place, and I think, you know, within three or four days, I got enough pictures to make a really nice story. The next one I did was the Black Country, and I worked on my own there, and therefore I didn't have any deadline at all. I could spend as long as I wanted to, and I did spend longer there. And in a way, people now always complain it must have been really hard not knowing what you'd got because you couldn't just see it on your screen. But in a way, I think it was a good thing because it kept me working for much longer than if I'd, if I'd, if I, after the, if at the end of the third day I knew I had a dozen good pictures, I would have said that's enough to fill 10 pages or eight pages of the magazine. I'll go home now. Whereas I didn't know what I got and therefore I kept working. There are some advantages in that too. Because the other thing was, I, I believe you you were on a not a retainer, but you had a contract then, but with the Sunday Times magazine. That was a bit later, a but I did it. Pages yeah. per year, I had right? I had a contract by the sort of later part of the sixties to do sixty pages a year. Yes. Okay. So that would take some of the pressure off as well, I guess. Well, it didn't take the pressure off to come up with a good story. Mm. You know, if you went somewhere, you you didn't come ho- you didn't want to come home until you were sure you had a good story so on on stories on exactly that point um it's interesting is an, another part of your career john was talking about the yanks coming to the uk your trip to appalachia was, was that instigated by you or was that a brief that came from the magazine because that that suddenly was a uk photographer and it, the work is beautiful i mean you working in color in america on a subject which was very much about that family of man topic yes. wasn't it well, I think that that did come from the Sunday Times, that idea of of an American issue, and it ended up with several issues on America. I think there are about three of them, because I did quite a lot of, for two issues, and there was another one on American football, which I didn't... Do. So they, they did quite a lot on America. This is 67, 68, over a while. And I think the Americans really weren't photographing themselves in those in that area um but also see they'd never done it in color anyway and the interesting thing is that life magazine in that period of the 60s did not do any photojournalism in color i think we spoke about that mm. before but the, their their serious photojournalism was all in black and white and color was used for sort of pretty essays mm. so when the sunday times came along they were doing something quite different and they did find it quite hard to start with, and I understand why, because they were looking around in England for photographers who could work in colour, and there really weren't any. Uh, nobody had used colour for that sort of thing before. And I felt even that some photographers were going out and shooting black and white pictures with colour film in their camera, and that you really do have to think differently. Mm. And the reason for this is the world is a very complex place full of extraneous detail and what you're doing when you're making a photograph of any kind is to try and in a way and compress all this fussiness and busyness into something that's simple enough that your eye knows where to go and and you end up with something that's simple and strong and if you add color to it you, you have more distraction 
and therefore I think you have to simplify the image when you do colour. And I think one of the things that did happen is that fewer of the colour pictures had a real decisive moment element of, about them. I think more of them looked staged and set up. And what I was trying to do was to take colour pictures that had the freshness of the of the decisive moment photographs. Um, and I and I was aware of that, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. But weather plays a big part in, I think, a lot of your images, uh, and obviously light. But going back to that, the Appalachian uh, sort of region in the US, there were similarities there with the coal deprivation. I think just the, the hard nature of yes. life in yep. terms of people working there. There's a diffused light in some of those images, I think, from America. Well, the indoor shot of the old couple, yeah. uh, him lying on the... Uh, the bed, and there's one more shot for me, which I think was the just a lone figure crossing a wooden bridge yeah. across a yes. the river. I mean, they're very painterly, but yeah. um, but your colour people here colour colour photography transparencies, and you expect vibrancy. But yours, I think, has a, has a there is a muted tone there, which I, I think is the smoke perhaps in the north is about the fog in America, maybe more about the light. But you're very conscious yeah. of keeping those colours not in your face. Yeah. When I first got the job of photographing the north of England colour for the Sunday Times magazine, I did scratch my head a lot because nobody would ever photographed the industrial north in colour on a professional basis. You know, a few amateurs had taken pictures. And, you know, it had been well photographed in black and white by a lot of people. But colour was, was different. And I felt that if I went out and did it on a sunny day, those cobbled streets and terraced houses it wouldn't quite work. You, you know, where you're making them sort of pretty holiday destinations or what were you doing? And I felt that to get the atmosphere that I felt about the North, um, that I really needed to do it in winter and in soft light and in rain and fog. And that presented quite a technical difficulty because the film, the colour film in those days was very slow. And yet I didn't want to have everybody stationary and posing and things like that. I wanted to try and grab pictures. So it was quite a, a tough assignment. What did you observe there? I mean, going to America and seeing those, those communities, were you thinking north of England? Were you thinking South Wales? Were you making those <clears throat> comparisons to the... To well, the probably not on a conscious no. state. I mean, I think people have often asked me, what did I think when I did this? And I think in the end, you, you know, I thought, well, that looks like a good picture. I think you do these things instinctively. I don't think you intellectualise them too much. But the first time I went to... Um, uh, well, certainly one of the times I went to Appalachia, to East Kentucky, that was, I arrived there and the first thing I heard was that a Canadian film filmmaker had just been down there a couple of weeks before and somebody had walked out of their house and shot him dead. So that was didn't give me a lot of confidence. And then I would go and... It was in the winter again. I did do this in the winter I wanted that atmosphere in the same way as the north of England and I remember there weren't many people out and about because it was so cold and so I went and tried knocking on doors uh, these huts up in, in the in the hills and very often the, the door would open a, a couple of inches and you see the barrel of the shotgun pointing in your belly and then now and again somebody would say come in you just never knew what reaction you'd get mm. and there was another story I did in there where the writer and I were literally chased out of town we, we we there was a local priest who came and knocked on our door at 10 o'clock at night in a motel and said advise you advise your boys to get out of town 
and we said why and there's a mob there's a mob forming up the village so it was a rough place and it's not changed that much even now we have a photographer in South Wales, Roger Tiley, who also went over to Appalachia, and he, he followed the um, the miners' strike yeah. uh, when we had it in the UK in the Thatcher years, and he's stuck with those mining... Um, well, Hisses, communities yeah. are no longer there. Yeah. He's stuck with the valleys, though, the mm. place. Would you consider going back in terms to, of to, recording to, it? To where? To, to, to the place. So the people well, definitely would have changed. Yeah. But. I, I've never been a great believer in going back. I mean, when the Sunday Times had their 50th anniversary issue, they said, would I go back to some of the, the places where I took the pictures of the north? And my response was, no, it's not about a place. If you go back to the same place, you come off second best. It's not about a place. It's about an atmosphere and about an era and about the characters. And... Um, it's not about the place, so that wasn't really the issue. So I, I didn't want to do that. But you did capture, I guess, like any good photojournalist, you would get that range of images to cover the story. Because some of your landscape work is quite nice, although you may not think of it as landscape. They are those yeah. establishing shots in Africa, uh, yeah. particularly abroad, but in Appalachia as well. Um, quite considered those images as well. I, uh, I've always felt that the that a story needed, a, for me, it needed a predominance of people in quite a lot of the shots. And I did take some shots with no people in them at all, but not very many. And I think that and if I had an eight-page story, there probably wouldn't be, at the most, more than one spread that had no people anywhere. Because to me, relating it to people is what worked. Mm. Do ideas tick around in your mind? and Are you still thinking? Like a well, <clears throat> I... It's, it's a tough one. I, I kind of gave up still photography back in the late end of the 70s and went into filmmaking. Mm. And although, you know, I've taken a few pictures, I, I don't think I can put the clock back and, and really go out and walk the streets. It takes a huge amount of energy to get good pictures. And, you know, I'm nearly 80 and I don't think physically I've got that amount of energy and hardness to really... No, no, do but it. do and the also, ideas keep... Oh away. yes, I keep thinking about That's it, and, thinking, it. and yeah. you know there are some extraordinary pictures coming out of places like Syria. Um, you know, if you look on, you know, the Guardian uh, picture collections or mm. on Getty, there are some extraordinary pictures being made still. Mm. But I don't have the the energy to do it now. No. What about the outlets for you know good photojournalism nowadays? Um, Back to your Cambridge days, you were also involved, you were a founding member of a magazine then as well, weren't you? Just, just describe how that came about and what was the reason yeah. for it? Well, when I was at Cambridge, I'd been working for the university newspaper, Varsity, which was very much a newspaper. And there were a few of us who loved the idea of being magazine photographers. And there wasn't a picture magazine in England at the time. So we thought, what the hell, we'll start one. So we did raise a bit of money from local advertisers and things a group of us and we started this magazine called image which we had a few issues of and i actually did i did a story on the the coal mining in hartlepool for them which uh, i just shot for for my own interest in it mm. and um uh, there were a few issues then i left cambridge and we handed it on to some to someone else to run and it ran on for a couple of years until it got sufficiently into debt so in the end, we gave it to Michael Heseltine for its debts and <laughs> moved out of it there. <laughs> Do you think there's a, I mean, contemporary photojournalism and, and this type of photography, say even in the UK, in terms of the new talent coming through, 
is there still a place for an outlet like that, something tangible in print, or can the web just satisfy all of that? Well, I think it would be nice if it could be, but I think financially it's very hard to do. I mean, I've even publishing photo books is a tough one because, you know, I've done two books now, but um, bookshops don't don't try and sell books, photo books anymore, really, and you can only excuse me, you can only sell them if you get enough interest over the web. And, people will buy them from Amazon or something. That It has to have a very special link because of the two books I've done, the, the, the first book I did, when I came to retire from filmmaking, I, I was trying to archive all my pictures and get them in order to leave them for the world. And I knew that the north of England was something that I really wanted to try and do a book on. And I was lucky because I had actually got eight assignments that I'd added together, as you might say, and that was just enough to make... A book so I put you know the selection of pictures from those eight assignments together in a book and thought here I here I go then much to my surprise I couldn't find a publisher and I felt that it was a very saleable theme because a lot of people who are nostalgic about the north and love it and I felt there were lots of people who'd want to buy a book on the north to give their grandma for Christmas or something uh, but no publisher was interested and I'd been struggling for nearly a year until um, uh, a guy from Liverpool, Colin Wilkinson, emailed me out of the blue and said, I've always loved your work, can we do something? And he's been absolutely wonderful. He let me do exactly what I wanted, which was to make a simple book without fancy layouts, just put the pictures together. Um, well, you've seen the book, obviously. Yep. And and, uh, and the amazing thing is that that book has done very well. We've sold out three editions and we're reprinting the fourth time. So that's done really well. And then we went on to do another book on the world called The Wind of Change, which is about that whole change in the world at the end of the colonial era. And I'm, I'm happy with the book. It's done what I wanted it to do, but not that many of them are sold. That seems so, to be a common theme amongst photographers. Yeah, you need a very specialised thing like the North, and that's, that I'm sure will go on selling now. It's, it's, um, but you need that body of work, John. Yes. I mean, you need to put I was in the graph. I was incredibly lucky that I had enough stuff on one subject like that, and particularly the last chapter, which was Manchester, just um, which was like an afterthought. I went back there 10 years after I thought I'd finished working in the Industrial North. I thought the Industrial North was finished, and I found in Manchester that there were still extraordinary remnants of it. And that, to me, was really lucky because it's given me enough colour mm. to make the book much more balanced than it otherwise would have been. Mm. In terms of today, you're going through your collection now, you're cataloguing and archiving, and where, where do you see that going? I mean, what puts a line under it for you in terms of... Well, um, yes, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I've, I've seen situations where people wanted to use pictures in exhibitions and things. Uh, you know, I've been part of a couple of mixed exhibitions where people wanted to use well-known pictures they couldn't because the people who had the originals or who owned the archive wanted too much money mm. so i think the key is to leave a digital copy of one's archive in several different places so that in 50 100 years time if someone wants to do an exhibition and they want a picture of timbuktu or, or manchester or whatever they won't have to pay so much money that they they can't do it mm. and uh that I think is important, but I think, I think that the galleries and people are very 
all slow to catch on. I mean, for example, I spoke to the V&A recently about my archive, and I was surprised to hear them say, we don't collect digital images. And what else is there now? You know, with the new stuff, there isn't a negative. Uh, there probably isn't a print because it's been used on Instagram. So if you don't collect a digital image, what is there to collect? I've, I've always believed in using the latest technology. I, mean, I never understand it when I've been to camera clubs and, and art colleges where they've said, oh, well, I, like to, I would like to develop my pictures the old-fashioned way. To me, if there's a new tool, you use it because what photography is about is using your eye and using your brain and trying to capture an image. And to me, it's not about a piece of negative. It's about an image. I mean, I had this... Recently, when a, the photographer I worked for in my school holidays in Hereford, Derek Evans, his work all went to the local country record, records office. And I got them feeling that they were trying to preserve every print and, or, and every negative. And my view is you, you need to make some judgment about what images are worth saving. And, you know, he wasn't Fox Talbot. Who cares about his negative? To me, it's only the image that the matters. Image. Mm. But they think I'm mad if I talk like that to them. What's your feeling on the uptake of photojournalism here currently in the UK, the way it's been taught and the career opportunities? If, if, well, if I, think it's, I think it's very hard to make a living as a photojournalist because uh, the number of outlets that are actually paying for it is, is going down all the time. And certainly if you look at the photographs that are that you see certainly on gallery walls and things, more and more of them are what I call art photography. And if you look at Magnum, for example, very few people in Magnum are making a living as photojournalists. They're making a living as what I would call art photographers. And they both have qualities, and I, I never want to limit photography to one thing or the other, mm. but I think it's a pity that photojournalism isn't what it was because there aren't the people paying the money for people to be doing it. Mm. I was incredibly lucky. I was sent to probably 100 countries by the Sunday Times. I mean, I was paid to be there and go and photograph things. It isn't like that now, seriously. But I, I've had uh, people say before, and again, I wonder whether these ideas pop through your head looking at news and current affairs, that there are stories on your doorstep. There are stories on one's doorstep, I'm sure. I think one of the things too is in addition to, to in addition to the fact of where are the stories the I work better with a deadline and an assignment mm. you know that pressure gets me out of bed in the morning it keeps me walking the streets mm. and if I just have to do things for myself that I might later show to somebody I find that much harder I don't I'm not the kind of artist who has that drive to keep at it just for myself I mean, I had huge respect, for example, for Philip Jones Griffiths' um, self-discipline to stay in Vietnam and keep on working at it. I used to usually get an assignment that would take me, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or something like that. And, you know, I was paid for it. I had to come back with, a, with, with pictures. And that gave me the courage to po point my camera in people's faces and gave me the drive to get out of bed in the morning. And I would find it harder to do it just for myself. In terms of sticking with new photographers and, and say, getting the inspiration that you had when, when you started, um, if we go back to where we started, what do you think it means for, say, a country like Wales or, or the South West, in fact, more, more broadly, 
to have a gallery such as the one we have now in, in the National Museum and, and that range of work that David Hearn has started. I, I think that the 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 the, the, the gallery in, in Wales is absolutely fantastic and David Hearn has done a great job in starting them off with a with a good collection. So and what's nice is that they're not trying to be parochial and have it just about Wales. You know, they're they're what they have there is an international collection of a very high level and I hope they can keep it that way. You know, I'd love to give them some more of my photographs so they've got something long term. But to me, the important thing is, is to keep their visions and keep it international and not just be tempted to be parochial because it's Wales. I don't see any sign they're doing that, which is great. No. Well, it's great to see one image up there, John, oh. of yours so far. And I hope <laughs> to see many more. Well, David's got two. There are, there are two in their possession, but they've only showed one of that. So far. So far, yeah. Right. The other one is the picture you mentioned of the Misty Bridge in the Black Country which is one of my favourites. Wonderful. Me, yeah. Mine too. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. That's been Great. fantastic.